Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about progress. So Lisa, when we originally scoped this episode, we were thinking about doing it a long time ago, I think. I think we were considering doing it almost a year ago, last February, right after the Biden administration took office. And I think if we had recorded it then, it would have looked very different than the conversation I think we're going to have now. I think when Biden got elected, we thought that he had a political quorum and that he would be able to help produce legislation that would actually help us move towards uh, more progressive politics. And I think that made us think about progress, maybe in a myopic way. And I think we, when we talk about progress, we often stick it to politics So I'm wondering, how do you think about progress? How do you think of it beyond just that that political definition of progressive? Yeah, I mean, if we had recorded this last January after the insurrection and inauguration, I think one reason we didn't is because it was just relief. It was too soon to feel progress because so much had been lost during the Trump years and quite frankly, the Obama years too, in some senses, like, you know, the crisis over the immigrant children in camps is still unresolved in my mind. So it's not like, you know, there are administrations that are progress forward only, right? Because that's not how imperialism or capitalism work. But I think this is a better time to talk about it with some clarity and some space from the horrors of the Trump administration, which to be fair, was a completely unique shit show. Uh, Progress to me is a really liberal meme, right? So it's highly technological. It's masculinized. It arises really as a meme defining, defining the presidency in the 60s with JFK. So it's very much about youth culture and globalization and optimism and hope. Obviously, everybody knows how I feel about hope as a trope of a presidency. But I think progress in and of itself is a dicey idea as a political vector, because I don't think that we have a grounded enough sense about what it even means to be governed or governable. And I don't think that we have a sensibility about freedom (laughs) to really think about what progress is, because for me, progress is only freedom. I mean, there's, we're moving towards freedom, but that is not what presidential politics, right. Or formal politics are not about freedom, right. They're about legislative wins or they're about, you know, executive showdowns, so they're about judicial conflict, but they're not about freedom. So I think progress in some ways is misleading in the political realm because we have an ungrounded notion of freedom or and, you know, governability. I agree with you that I, I don't think we think about progress in, in the right way. And I think when we're thinking about society, progressing, we think about tech innovation and futuristic fantasies of what will be possible from like a technology perspective. And I think we put too many eggs in like the entrepreneurship and Mm -hmm. privatization basket. Like we lean on that too heavily for progress. And I, I don't 
think it leads to the best outcomes. At a minimum, it distributes progress unevenly. It distributes freedom unevenly. So like, it's why you get like businesses where they make birthday cakes for dogs, but you don't get better healthcare or um, livable (laughs) wages. I don't think we're solving for the right kinds of problems. Um, And we're, it is a governability problem. Like you say, like, we just don't focus resources on things that are actually leading us to more freedom. Like, I don't want our future to be like more drones and self-driving cars. Like, I don't actually care about that. I don't care if the future has that or not. What I care about is like me and my peers have some kind of joy (laughs) and that we have some ability to afford the things that we need um, and the things that like make us more comfortable too. So it's weird that we've framed progress in this way where it's like helping us continue this consumer cycle um, that's actually not making our lives better, but it is making some people richer, very few people (laughs) Well, yeah, because it's socializing risk and privatizing reward. And that privatization of reward is hyper-individualist, right? Whether it is the multi-billionaire CEO or whether it is (laughs) the landed gentry or whatever form of colonialism it's rewarding, it is an individualized reward. I think that is progress in and of itself. If you look at the language, certainly of the way that progress has been framed, at least in the 20th and early 21st centuries, it's been very much about the individual tinker, right? Inventing something out of his own head, his own white brain, right? Unencumbered by anyone else's labor. And that fantasy, I think, really hampers our ability to pursue freedom and liberation. And it grounds progress in just like this, you know, 19th century individual white dude body, able, you know, able body. And I think it does us a disservice because it doesn't get us to community-based solutions for large-scale problems. I mean, we're still in the middle of this stupid pandemic, right? And our healthcare system sucks. And for-profit healthcare is obviously immoral. And the price gouging is immoral. And the price fixing on insulin is immoral. And, you know, and the voting rights are undermined. And we're not moving towards a more equitable and liberated free society. We're moving towards different forms of, you know, tyranny under the guise of individual liberty. And I think that's the most disturbing thing about the political moment is the way that the libertarian sentiment about freedom, whether it's masking or vaxxing or abortion or whatever, is this hyper-masculine individual subject who gets to decide that his freedoms are better than your health or whatever form it comes in this libertarian version of progress is really racist and it's really sexist and it's really you know, ableist, and it's really anti-Black, anti-Native, and colonial. And that makes it very hard then to produce a politics of accountability that can move the country forward in a way that distributes freedom at all, you know, let alone equitably. Given what's happened over the last decade almost, I feel like we have gotten increasingly libertarian from that progress perspective. And I almost feel like we've regressed we're doing the opposite of progress right now. So right now, you know, when I think about progress, I'm thinking more about repair. I'm like, how do we heal? (laughs) How do we like get back on steady ground from this step back 
from community, any kind of acknowledging community-based solutions and like focusing on like individual needs like so intensely. So like I'm I'm at the point of repair, not progress. I like thinking about regression that way because I'm thinking about sort of the mathematical, psychological notion of regression towards the mean, right? Where if you take one sample of a random sample and it's really extreme, the next one will be closer to the mean. I feel like Trump was the extreme and Biden is the regression back to the mean, which is this like super boring contradictory experience of democracy that is both racist and trying to expand voting rights, that is both capitalist and is forgiving a bunch of fucking loans, that is trying to put money into climate change, but not nearly enough, that's trying to build infrastructure, but giving it to Republican governors because of block grants. Like, you know, it is this I like the idea of regression in a bunch of different ways because I do think that it helps us reframe what repair could look like, you know, and move away from progress and towards repair. But if we move towards repair, I think the obstacle is rupture. The country is full of ruptures. It's pipeline ruptures, right? And anti-Native sentiment. It is white supremacist kidnapping plots. It's insurrectionist violence. It is shooting protesters. It's over-policing. It is prison expansion. It's school-to-prison pipeline. It is hyper-consumption. It is anti-health and welfare. So the ruptures are huge right now. And the risk is being distributed, I think we've talked about in other episodes this season, to the white middle class, what's left of it, right? And to white people. In some ways, I feel like that continues to be an opportunity for right class solidarity, even though white people have a higher fidelity to white supremacy than they do to class. This is the moment where the rolling resignations and the refusal to work and the strikes and the student walkouts are, I think, really opportunities to rethink how the rupture could move towards repair. I mean, it's clear that this is a moment where people are hungry for repair and they have a paucity of vocabulary and a paucity of leaders and a real lack of clarity about how to get together as groups to do the repair, to heal the rupture. And part of that is toxic patterns in their communities, right? Part of it is political patterns that are toxic, right? And overinvestment in formal politics instead of grassroots. And part of it is interpersonally, like leaders are dicks, right? And so they're bad faith actors and they're petty and they're hard to work with and the unions are intransigent, whatever. But I do think that this is a moment to really reflect on where the ruptures are and what it means to repair them. I think that that's the right impulse completely. I mean, I think that's really interesting because I think one result of us taking steps backwards is that I think um, most of us agree now (laughs) that we don't want to live this way. This is not okay. And I think people are waking up to the fact that the economic system is brutal and their individual stagnation or they're spinning their wheels. It's not their fault necessarily. I I feel like people are kind of able to not then blame themselves as much, um, which I think is a real barrier to progress. You know, so people are realizing like it's not reasonable for the culture to insist that we're thin or (laughs) not reasonable for the culture or your job to insist that you be submissive. And just accept every kind of treatment. I mean, I am encouraged by by that. And I, I, I do think that, you know, acknowledging that this is broken 
uh, is definitely the first step. But I, I also think we have kind of a positive affirmation problem where we realize that our political systems and our economic system is like in a state of decay. But we just think that believing that and talking about it is like enough to change it. And, you know, like I retweet something every once in a while, and obviously we podcast about it. So we're putting good critical thought into (laughs) these systems and what we can do. And I, I'm obviously not speaking for both of us when I say this, but I'm kind of like, that's not enough. (laughs) You know, like, I don't feel like I've done my part. Like I get into this and many people get into this affirmation trap where it's like, we are progressive, you know, like we have the right deals, we have the right mindset and that's enough to make it actually come to fruition. (laughs) How is that different from, we talked about this, you know, magical thinking in a past episode. And I feel like to a certain extent, I'm just virtue signaling, you know, and not actually pushing for progress. Um, I don't want to be too hard on myself here. Like I I do think that, you know, our social media and um, our reward systems have like made it too easy to participate in an illusory way. But I, I want us to like think about how do we get past just participating in that illusory way is enough to scratch the itch. Like we have to have progress, like actionable change. That's, I think the central question, I think reflection and consciousness raising are essential, but they are not enough. Right. So I, I do like toy with writing some sort of medium post. It's like, this is what you can do. Like middle-class white people to like, you know, scratch the dopamine itch of like producing progressive politics without just spinning your wheels and bloviating on the internet, which obviously I bloviate as much as possible, but part of it is institution building, right? So if if democracy is the thing you want to build, you have to build the democratic institutions. If socialism is the thing you want to build, you have to build the socialist institutions. None of the middle-class white people are building socialist institutions. I think it's a harder sell in this political moment of decay. Um, And so it's like, okay, well, are we giving money to libraries? Are we doing voter registration drives? Like, what are the what are the areas of institution building? Who is standing up for the fucking teachers and the nurses and right the medical professionals in these essential things, even though obviously public education and for profit healthcare are certainly not perfect. And I would say in, in ways they're not good. So what does it mean to do work to strengthen democratic institutions beyond showing up to vote, quite frankly, right? Or giving money passively to a candidate and please continue to do those things, but they are also not enough. And I just think that is the fundamental question of what populism looks like. It can't just be negative populism, right? That's what's happening in the GOP is negative populism plus some groupthink and propaganda. So it's like, how do you ethically do populism in this media ecology in this moment of decay? Like, what is ethical populism? It looks like fucking voting rights. It looks like the distribution of freedom. It looks like freedom language. And the fact that we don't have a national vernacular about freedom that is inclusive of all of the peoples, but certainly one that is away from that libertarian tradition of the white, masculine, able-bodied, hetero, Christian individual is where this impulse breaks down. How do you get people, especially in a pandemic, to get together and do real, right, institution building, whether they're new institutions or old institutions? And that isn't to say that old institutions have to be broken too, right, to repair or to move past the regression. But you know how I feel about accelerationism. 
<laughs> it's a dodgy proposition when the impulse to fascism is so high. And so it seems like the tearing down the institutions is not necessarily the move, but reimagining them is absolutely. I think that's how, you know, the court packing fantasy is working. Democrats, like, I don't know, just ignored new conservatism. And we're like, oh, they want to take the judiciary. We'll just let them court pack with all of their conservative judges to do all this heinous shit. And now it's like, oh, God, the Supreme Court. It's like, have you not been paying attention for the last 40 years? Like, what the fuck? That was the point. That was the entire point of the thing, of the exercise. So court packing, I think, is an example of the fantasy of repair and is also a way of uh, managing accountability for a thing that everybody talked about that was happening in the open and that there was no national movement to stop or to address or to discuss with the public in ways that were a clarion call for dismantling the presidential judicial appointment system or to just demystify how the judiciary functions as a tool of white power. So in some ways, I think the only way to move past decay is for the Democrats who coalition with the left to really drop the white supremacy shit, purge those ideas and practices and toxic patterns, and to renew with something younger and more uh, ideologically inclusive and focused on freedom. I mean, I think uh, accountability is the way forward one to stop the bleeding <laughs> yes prevent like further regression and also create frameworks for actually letting people understand like what the mechanisms of power even are and what the mechanisms of oppression are to recognize it and to also be able to remove it from the equation to get rid of interests that are against the, the, that work against the public good. I mean, those things have to be out in the open. So it's visibility, it's accountability. What do you think about the January 6th commission? Because I feel like it is a test case for understanding what accountability looks like in a moment of decay. And I'm thinking a lot about it as a spectacle of democracy and as democracy theater, but also as an arena for trying to build consensus towards accountability as a public good. The way I feel about it is that I am skeptical because we haven't produced compelling accountability. Uh, we certainly didn't at all during the Trump administration. Like every institution that was supposed to be an institution of checks and balances completely failed. And so it is hard for me to think that the commission can be effective. But the Supreme Court decisions about withholding documents from the commission and the fact that, you know, the White House isn't going to be able to hide communications that happened that day. I mean, that is an encouraging step. Oh, I think a bunch of people are going to jail. I mean, you know how I feel about the carceral place as a space of accountability. It's not exactly, but in terms of white collar crime and engineering anti-democratic practices, there is no other real mechanism beyond censure, which is, you know, absurd as a form of discipline. So I think the real the thing that's going to hamper accountability with January 6th is actually the media. Right. Because they don't want to cover it because it operates against their tacitly fascist investment in a 
you know, P.T. Barnum, Carnival Barker turn towards, you know, reality TV instead of governing. And that's a problem that persists as a problem when the entire legacy media is just staffed by kids from Harvard and Yale who don't know shit about the country and have no like lives outside of the Beltway or New York. It's really hard, I think, to get fresh perspectives, either that like get the public to buy into producing a collective narrative about what progress or repair might look like, and then to really just distribute the information in a way that is not just a propaganda model. So that seems to be a major problem (laughs) in, in this ecology that's not just like I didn't like my president is not leftist enough is really actually not the sole problem. <laughs> it's one of many that implicate each other. I just remember I was on stage at an event and with a bunch of journalists like before the 2016 election. And I said, you know, Trump's going to win and you guys are going to have a crisis in your field. What are you doing to prepare for this massive crisis? of identity and of purpose. And they just looked at me like I was a crazy person, right? A, because they had bought the media narrative that Hillary was going to win and B, because they were above reproach, right? That there might be journalistic practices that were leading us towards the belly of the beast. So I think that for me, a lot of the toxic patterns in the way that we think about progress are led by a media ecology that's failing us as a proto-democratic or aspirationally democratic nation. And that's something that I hear a lot. Everybody is like, my parents are now these Fox News freaks, right? Who who have been drawn into this crazy paranoid QAnon reactionary world and they can't see the forest from the trees. That is a non-negligible problem, both for governability and for notions of repair and progress. That is a massive rupture and a delusion on such a huge scale, and also an issue of identification with the delusion that is like unseverable, I think. There's no re-education campaign for the, the boomers who are lost to the Fox News paranoia. So the movie Don't Look Up, the new Adam McKay movie, like blew up on Netflix recently. It's supposed to be a commentary on climate change and like our lack of action around climate change. And all of the critics really didn't like the movie. It got a lot of bad reviews. And a lot of people are saying it's because the movie took such a hard critical stance on the media. And I actually think the movie was less a critique of how we're handling climate change and a critique of the media, like just ignoring (laughs) things that are actually relevant and like having like a false sense of priority. Yeah, we see it too. Like um, one thing that's going around the internet right now is that 60 Minutes did this piece on the Great Resignation, mm-hmm. and they only interviewed employers. They did not interview yeah. any workers whatsoever. And actually, it's like the number one video on YouTube right now, and it has like YouTube actually removed the number of dislikes from the website because it got so many downvotes because it's like an interpretation of this cultural moment where workers are resigning because they have had no mobility, have been underpaid for their labor for years. Um, and <laughs> it misunderstands the entire cause of that. And intentionally, also, intentionally yeah. misunderstands. Right. And that is something that the media does. <laughs> I mean, it has been intentionally ignoring what's happening with the working class. And that's something that 
Fox News manipulated in a really powerful way by talking to that segment of the population, acknowledging the fact that legacy media had been ignoring their issues and their class for decades. So, I mean, that is true, Um, but obviously they've manipulated that in a way that continues the cycle of regression. (laughs) But it's a serious question about how to turn political grievance into productive politics, right? That's a serious question. And we're in a grievance moment, right? It's all backlash all the time. That's exhausting. And it's complicated by the fact that the country is still in its political infancy, right? So if we think of ourselves as a democracy, it's nominal at best, and it's only an experimental phase. And it's only really existed since 1965, since the Voting Rights Act. And we're in this regressive moment. It's like, oh, let's let's return to a pre-1965 moment, which of course has been the impulse of the GOP for the entire history of the 20th and late 19th centuries. So that's not a surprising impulse, but the fact that we are 60 years out from that and still have such a shitty political vocabulary is a problem, right? And I think for the leftists who are doing constructive work and not just destructive work, right, because fashioning new futures requires both construction and destruction, the best work is being done around the political vocabulary around property rights, right? Racial contract, Charles Mills around the political language of freedom and how liberalism has had an incomplete account of governability and progress that has been so hampered by its racial and colonial investments. That is where the intellectual project, certainly the one that I'm, I'm staked out in is going. But that still doesn't <laughs> deal with the problem on the ground, which is that regular people cannot talk about politics in a way that is, I think, moving towards a distribution of resources and freedom. They cannot do it because hoarding is the only way that they understand their own success because it is such a limited individual frame. And I just think about how fundamentally naive that is and watching all these people die because they won't get vaccinated is like the ultimate moment where sort of like the political and ethical lesson is about collective struggle. And people are like, I'm not fucking collectively struggling. I refuse to do it. I would rather die alone. I would rather crash this entire thing to the ground, right? Because that is the conservative libertarian impulse of the individualist assertion of freedom, you know, to or from. I think people who are paying attention also just have a keening grief right now about watching it all kind of collapse and knowing that it's part and parcel of climate change and capital. And I think a lot of people can't get their heads out of their asses about the sadness of it to do things. So it's not just that political grievance as a culture is hampering collective action. It's also that people who haven't suffered in particular white people can't manage their grief and anger about it because their families are fragmented and their social lives are fragmented from COVID and they hate their jobs and capitalism is ruining them. And they haven't yet come to terms with the fact that they do need a new political future to build together with other people who are not like them. And I don't know, you know, ruptures are our points of, I think, hope and optimism because new things can be built. It's a question, though, of ethical will and of material will, and that I'm obviously more pessimistic about. Well, I think it starts by asking the right questions. The fundamental question we should always ask, like with anything we do, is who does this benefit? And if the answer is 
just me or people like me, then it's not ethical. So I don't think we do the bare minimum necessarily to think through like what decisions we make, including with how we vote, which is like a bare minimum of civic participation. I mean, this is a moment of intense gaslighting and cognitive dissonance. And I feel like, you know, you're, you were talking about the 60 minutes thing and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. That's, that is a gaslighting thing that's happening. And also the coverage of mental health and the COVID is like staying at home is hard on mental health. Where are your friends? You're not, you know, it's like, what? That is absolutely the most like infantile framework for what is missing and is causing people to have the big sads. And it's like, not just, we don't get to see our baristas in person and the masks make us sad because we can't see mouths. It's like, there's no fucking childcare. There's no FMLA. Restaurant workers don't have sick days. It is like this, it is easily identifiable shit that could be fixed. And so I think, you know, the gaslighting and the cognitive dissonance about exceptional American democracy and right. Also what seems like empire collapse are really producing ambivalent subjects that are just like, I just want to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It feels different when there were, was some action, like some actual acknowledgement of how bad the situation was and is, um, and of the structural issues. Like people were saying how hard it was for restaurant workers. And now people are like, I'm tired of not getting what I used to be able to get for I'm tired of the restaurant being out of food. I feel like we had more uh, will, I think, and we felt encouraged that things are going to change. We can change. You know, this is a good reset. When there was less gaslighting, when there was acknowledgement and there was, um, you know, action being taken, but I, it just feels like things are still bad and we've decided <laughs> that we're going to ignore it now. Well, you know, when the last big public demonstrations on on the coalitional left, I guess, for lack of a better term, because of paucity vocabulary, you know, the pussy hat lady march after Trump won. If that's like the last moment of large scale solidarity and then BLM, right? Like those are the two um, anchors in the contemporary political moment from large scale public mobilization and nobody can get it together in the COVID to do strikes. I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> like the Kellogg's employees did a strike um, that eventually worked. I mean, the strikes that have happened have received oh, yeah. a massive public support. But you know, I'm saying a national strike. Yeah. That's where the shit is at that. This is the, if this is not the crisis, right. That we're calling the resignation, but really it's, you know, slow rolling wildcat strikes. Where are the national labor leaders? Like, where is the ATF? Where is NEA? Where? I mean, the airlines have held their shit together because their profits are hosed, but also they get so, so much massive government subsidies, they'll be fine. Where the fuck is the labor movement? Oh, right. We don't have one. So, you know, especially here in the South with the right to work. And that seems to be of the places for reflection and reparation. The lack of a robust labor politics is an impediment to a vocabulary of freedom that would distribute, you know, rights and material resources more equitably, period. There's it's not coming from anywhere else. Nobody else is coming to save us. There's no other political vector 
through which this is going to happen. There are just other political problems that intersect with class politics that we continue to have a shitty vocabulary. And in part, that's a failure of the left in collapsing to anti-communist red baiting from the 50s forward. But the lack of conversation about socialism or socialist democracies is why we have such infantilized politics in the United States. For, I mean, there's just, it is part and parcel with racism. The refusal to talk about class politics is a fundamentally white supremacist thing. So I feel like you're right that we're in a regressive moment and in a moment of decay. I feel like there are political opportunities that are emerging. There's certainly evidence of successes. The question is whether or not people can read them as such. And I don't think that they have the political training to do it quick. Frank. Certainly it's not happening in the academy. So if the country is like <laughs> waiting on higher ed to teach people how to read a class. Well, we afford it. So higher ed is not the answer. It is not the answer. You know, it's always funny to see the headlines that are like, oh my gosh, the higher ed is full of communists. Like I wish. There are wonderful threads where people are able to share like shitty emails they got from their boss and like a workplace abuses and get legal advice, but we just don't have like a public resource that we can trust or that's readily accessible to everyone. I, it is sort of interesting to watch NPR hemorrhage all of its, you know, black journalists, because I feel like for a long time, you know, good liberals championed NPR as the gold standard. And of course, you know, you and I have drunk ranted about NPR and I'm like, you know, NPR is like the golf channel of politics. It's like the most boring <laughs> point of access for, for newly awakened political, you know, sensibilities. And also it's racist. So like there are all of these canaries in the coal mine being like, hello, reimagine your shit. I think everybody's just like putting their fingers in their ears, trying to deal with, you know, real material problems with cash money and childcare and COVID. And also there's just such a total leadership vacuum because the boomers took up all the space for their entire lives and there's no bench. And so I don't know. I think there are real barriers to overcome. I don't, I don't think it's impossible whether or not I think it's likely, I, I suppose is a different question, but I think for lean back thinking about repair is an essential question of the age. I mean, given the ruptures that are happening, you know, in formal politics, but also in institutions like the family, certainly the white family is rupturing over, you know, the QAnon, Trumper, COVID stuff. And I think that if there is going to be a new politics for white folks, it has to be in reconstituting white spaces, public and private, the church, the family, public education, which is basically run by white ladies. I think there has to be a real reckoning with what is wrong. And I think on the positive side, the GOP attention to CRT, which is both laughable and useful, is instructive, right? Because it's helping refocus a conversation on history as a rhetorical and political resource. And it, it's a tool of resource mobilization, certainly not in K through 12, but I'd love it to be shit. If this conversation pushes a bunch of teachers to be more inclusive in their K through 12 curriculum, to think through theory and praxis around the law, I would be fine with that. I don't think it will, but it's an opportunity, I think, to reframe resource mobilization around history and cash money and the family and the church and public education and health care and voting rights and these sorts of things. So in some ways, I'm glad that we recorded this episode for Lean Back Now because I actually feel more optimistic 
about some of these things than I would have a year ago after Biden's inauguration, which was, you know, just what is such, such, such crazy weeks in January 2021. <laughs> no. And it's like, OK, well, we didn't get to really exhale, but we're still some of us are still here, I guess, to do this work. And so it's a, a sense of mourning and I think a sense of uh, immediacy driving this part of the conversation. 